A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 128 The Prudent Course Last time, the Romans captured the city of Melitene, their first permanent reconquest of eastern territory since the rise of the Caliphate. The news that the Byzantines were a serious military threat spread quickly, and the Hamdanid governor of Aleppo, Sefadola, marched into the mountains to contest their presence. But in 940, news came that yet another coup was taking place in Baghdad, and keen to preserve his status in the diminishing world of the Caliphate, Saif led his army east, leaving northern Syria and Mesopotamia undefended. John Corcuas, senior commander of the Roman army, saw in Saif's absence a golden opportunity. In spring 941, he called up every soldier that could be spared. He was preparing to boldly go where no Roman army had gone for centuries. As eastern soldiers began excitedly gathering, news reached Constantinople of Arab pirates in the Aegean. Romanus ordered the fleet to sail south and deal with them. Someone in the Rus trading district of the capital was paying close attention, because a few weeks later, reports arrived that a huge fleet was crossing the Black Sea, headed for the city. The Rus had launched a similar surprise assault twice before, in 860 and 907. On both occasions, they had good intelligence that told them when the Roman military was preoccupied elsewhere. The population of the capital went into high anxiety as the news spread. Romanus sent word immediately to John, asking him to return as quickly as possible. But he would not arrive in time to stop the attack. Something had to be done to protect the city. Only fifteen ships could be found in the capital's harbours, which were capable of military action. Hastily, they were patched up, and fitted with siphons and Greek fire, and put under the command of Theophanes, the chief minister. He ventured out to the north entrance of the Bosphorus, and on the 11th of June, hundreds of small Rus ships hove into view. This was a terrifying sight. Despite their small size, everyone knew that they contained dozens of savage, heathen warriors. Fortunately for the Byzantines, 
their wonder weapon was at their service. Having set the sea itself on fire and toasted a few unfortunate vessels, the rest of the Northmen sailed east, leaving the metropolis alone. However, they landed in Bithynia and began terrorizing the local inhabitants. Fleeing citizens began arriving at the capital, spreading stories of horror. The Rus plundered their way to Nicomedia before they met any resistance. The imperial troops who made the first stand were under the command of Bardas Phocas, brother of Leo, who Romanus had outmaneuvered twenty years earlier. Bardas organized a local militia to harry the invaders until Corcuas arrived. Once he was on site, the domestic swiftly defeated the Rus in battle and drove them back toward the coast. However, they were tenacious raiders, and John did not have the whole army with him. So though he blocked them from venturing further inland, the invaders remained and took their time stripping villages and churches of their wealth before they departed in September. The Rus had lingered too long, though. Word had reached the imperial fleet, and many ships were now back home. Theophanes gathered this far more intimidating force and waited for the Rus, laden with loot, to push off into the Black Sea. Suddenly, the Roman fleet swept out of the Bosphorus and bore down on them. Again, employing fire, they shattered the Rus' armada. Many men drowned or were captured, and Theophanes was heavily praised by the emperor for this eye-catching success. As usual, however, Rus' ambassadors were able to push for an improved peace treaty after the event. The Romans, knowing the danger which the northern kingdom represented, negotiated terms. John Corcuas was frustrated to have lost the opportunity to raid the caliphate that summer. But his informants told him that the Hamdanids were still occupied in Baghdad and would be the next year as well. Anxious to make a start, the domestic led the troops he had into Syria in January 942. They raided down the Euphrates to Aleppo, Saif's capital, and returned with booty and prisoners in the spring. The emir of Tarsus made a raid on Anatolia in the summer to help deflect Byzantine attention, but John had his eyes on the prize. He regathered the army in full strength, and when autumn came, he pushed forward to Melitene. The Romans descended from the mountains on Martyropolis and sacked it. The same treatment was meted out to the nearby city of Arzen. John was so confident in the disarray of Arab defences that he decided to spend the winter in the captured cities. He wanted to strike deep into enemy territory when spring came. In early 843, then, the host moved forward, swords drawn. This time they marched to the Tigris River and sacked the city of Amida. Then they pushed across the dusty trails to the south and came across a familiar sight to us. The cities of Dara and Nisbis still lay close to one another, marking the spot where two ancient empires had once met. Roman forces 
hadn't been to this spot since the day they abandoned Syria to the Arabs. Now, both fortresses were swiftly smashed, their goods taken, their people enslaved. With the heat of summer setting in, Korkuas pushed west to his real target, Edessa. Aside from withstanding a couple of Sassanid sieges, the city never featured heavily in our narrative, but it was a great Christian center of learning and housed a most prized relic, the Mandilion. The story of the Mandilion goes like this. During Jesus' time on earth, the king of the independent city of Edessa was desperately ill and heard that Christ could work miracles. So he wrote, asking if the preacher would visit him. Jesus would not interrupt his ministry, but wrote back and included a piece of cloth or a scarf in the package. Jesus had pressed the cloth to his face, which had miraculously transferred the impression of his features onto the material. When the king received the cloth and the letter, he was cured, and so this first Christian icon was revered and kept Edessa safe. According to our sources, the tale of the Mandilion had grown over time. In fact, in my recent Byzantine story about Procopius, I talked about this. As far as Procopius knew, all Edessa had was the letter. No scarf was mentioned. Nevertheless, a generation after Justinian and the existence of the Mandilion was well known. It was actually brought out in 588 to try and mollify some of Maurice's rebellious soldiers. The troops knew a cynical imperial ploy when they saw one and pelted the bearers of the holy cloth with stones. The Mandilion was not damaged, though, and gained a unique reputation in the Christian world. It was a piece of material which connected the city directly to Jesus' time on earth, and its miracle-working powers brought it visitors from all over. In fact, the iconophiles regularly pointed to the Mandilion when arguing that God not only approved of icons, but had initiated their passage into our world. The Christians of the city were left to guard their treasure by the Islamic authorities, and so it remained safe in the city until now. John's reputation preceded him. The city was already in a panic, and the treasure and slaves lined up behind the general were a stark warning of what resistance might bring. Still, Edessa's walls were strong, and help might be on its way, so when John announced that he would leave them unharmed if they handed over the Mandilion, the city's authorities refused. John set up a siege, and negotiations continued. The Romans offered to hand back high-profile prisoners and never to molest the city again. Months passed, with no sign of safe, and so the Edessenes relented. This was a historic triumph. John and Romanus had chosen their target well. They were not taking anything which the caliphate would miss, but the sight of a famous Christian relic being handed over by the Muslims was a PR victory of epic proportions. 
no one back in Byzantium could fail to see this clear sign of God's favor. The Mandilion was transported across Anatolia rather than being put on a ship. That way as many people as possible would experience its presence. And sure enough, in reports of its journey, miracles occurred as curious villagers came to the roadside to see the convoy. It was 9.44 by the time it arrived at the capital. Theophanes greeted the caravan and provided an imperial escort to take it across the waters to the Golden Gate. It was transferred into the city with much pomp and paraded around the full length of the land and sea walls so that it might bless them. No one had seen scenes as emotive as this since Heraclius entered Jerusalem with the true cross. We should remember that to the people of the capital, the fall of Melitene may not have meant a lot. Most of them would have little idea of where it was or why its capture was so significant. Far more relevant to them was that three years earlier the city had been under assault by the Rus. So not only did this triumph indicate the success of Roman arms, but it was also a renewal of God's protection for his city. So not only did this triumph indicate the success of Roman arms, but it was also a renewal of God's protection for his city. The Mandilion was taken to the sanctuary of the Archia Sophia, then on to the throne in the palace. And finally, it was housed in a golden reliquary in the church of the Pharos. The reliquary was suspended from the ceiling on chains. Several foreign visitors report seeing it, though not the cloth itself. Apparently only the emperor was allowed to unlock the case. Romanus's younger sons, Stephen and Constantine, both now in their late twenties, were conspicuous as they welcomed the relic into the palace. They wanted to be associated with this success, and it was notable that Romanus himself was absent. The emperor, in his mid-seventies, was too fragile to join the procession. Before we return to the palace, we should talk about John Corcuas. This is the last piece of major action that the domestic will oversee, and his achievements should not be forgotten. He was the empire's leading general for two decades. I'm struggling to think of anyone in Byzantine history who was actively engaged in warfare at such a high level for so long. And he was marching into the mountains each year. This was not easy terrain. He had to take full precautions and have areas fully scouted before entering them. This was tiring, laborious work. He was also tangling directly with Arab soldiers on their own turf, something very few Roman generals had done in the past 300 years. He had to have faced doubts about whether he would succeed. In fact, the campaign into Syria began a major change in the tactics of the Roman army. After all, the maneuvers needed to win battles in the mountains were quite different from those required in the flat plains of Syria. We will explore this in detail soon. Apart from his obvious skills, John's success stems from the consistency 
of his campaigning. By controlling one front for 20 years, he was able to define clear objectives and achieve them. Roman troops, for so long skittish when it came to pitched battles, grew in confidence as they returned to the same scene each year and succeeded. The next generation of military leaders who would take credit for glorious victories learnt their trade at the feet of Corcuas. We are, as ever, at the mercy of our sources, and though I've been able to give you a pretty good sketch of his career, we've had very few personal details, or even little anecdotes about the campaigns. Tantalizingly, one of our sources mentions a lost history which included more details of John's deeds. Apparently this work compared him to Belisarius and Trajan, but alas, we cannot read it. And even in the history we do have, the general is the victim of some airbrushing. In a particularly pro-Macedonian work, he isn't even mentioned in the story of the Mandilion. Romanus had not forgotten John, though, as we'll get to in a moment. Like his general, the emperor's time on the throne is poorly documented. He reigned for 25 years, and yet here we are four episodes later, wrapping things up. What we do know is that now in his 70s, Romanus had begun to think about his soul. Despite the favour God had clearly shown him, had he done enough to repay his patron? Romanus consulted some learned monks about what else he could do, and two decisions flowed from those discussions. One was a remission of debt for people at the capital, a typical bit of philanthropic generosity that might have helped the poor, and the other was a renewal of the persecution of the Jews. This was not difficult to enact, as Basil and Leo had already put these laws in their books. Romanus was just encouraging them to be enforced. As usual, details are scarce, and probably the public baptisms that followed were swiftly dried off. Official complaints actually arrived about this from both the Khazars and the Caliph of Spain, whose Jewish subjects lobbied him to intervene. The persecutions were dropped soon after Romanus was ousted from power. Speaking of which, Romanus was also concerned about the succession. So he made plans to marry John's daughter to Constantine the Seventh's son, Romanus. If we've understood this plan correctly, then it would secure the succession for the Macedonian dynasty. Constantine remained technically next in line to the throne, and allying him with Corcuas would provide him with the protection he'd need to see off rival claimants. Of course, the most obvious rivals would be Romanus's other sons, Stephen and Constantine, which is a bit strange. We're left to wonder why the Vasilefs did not push for one of his own boys to succeed him. It's possible that his fondness for his daughter Helena swayed him. She'd already produced a healthy male heir, so his blood would continue to flow through imperial veins. Or it could be that Romanus kept in touch with public opinion and knew that the people 
still wanted their prince to reign. Pure pop psychology on my part, but we have seen Roman fathers before pouring energy into their eldest son, but showing much less concern for younger ones. Vespasian with Titus and Domitian comes to mind, but also Basil, who was devastated by the loss of his eldest boy, and was then never on great terms with Leo VI. Whatever his true reasoning, if Romanus expected his sons to accept their subordination, he was wrong. On hearing of the proposed marriage plans, the boys bullied their father into dismissing John as domestic. Romanus was too weak to resist, and the deed was done. This set palace intrigues into motion for the rest of 944. By December, the Lecapini boys decided to act now before it was too late. Just before the Christmas celebrations, they came to their father's room at night and abducted him. They carried poor old Romanus down to the harbour and put him on a waiting boat. The emperor was taken to the prince's islands, the group of small isles in the Sea of Marmara that were often used to house imperial exiles. Once there, Romanus was forced to take holy orders and become a monk. The next morning, Stephen and Christopher announced to the shocked staff that they were now in charge. Rumour flew through the city, and naturally as the gossip mutated, many citizens became concerned about the welfare of Constantine VII. A crowd gathered outside the palace, demanding to see him and registering their anger at the thought that he'd come to harm. As the noise outside grew, the Lecapini brothers began to fear for their own safety. So they produced Constantine, who waved to the crowd from a window to assure them that he was safe. Back inside the palace, the brothers agreed to recognize Constantine VII as senior emperor, but they planned on doing away with him at the first opportunity. Constantine, backed by his wife Helena against her own brothers, acted before they could. He appointed Bardas Phocas as his new domestic, reviving the alliance between the Macedonian house and the Phocas family. It was Bardas's men who would make the decisive intervention as tensions boiled over in January 945. We're told that Constantine's breakfast was poisoned one morning, and on discovering this, he called in his domestic and moved against his in-laws. That evening, as Stephen and Constantine sat down to dinner, soldiers appeared, kidnapped them, and dragged them down to the harbour. They were forced onto a boat and sent to the same island where they dispatched their father. One source preserves a story about Romanus's sarcastic greeting to his two offspring, though it's almost certainly made up. Still, it's pretty amusing to think that the aged emperor did say to his two sons, So nice to see you. I suppose you were moved by piety to abandon the palace for the monastic life as I was. What a good thing it is that you sent me on ahead, or my poor brother monks would be completely ignorant of the protocol for greeting an ex-emperor. 
It would be easy to judge the Le Capinay boys as horrible people, but court politics were ruthless. They probably feared for their own safety, with their brother-in-law in charge, and would certainly have had many people whispering poison in their ears. Back in the palace then, Constantine VII finally inherited the throne, which his father Leo had worked so hard to secure for him. Just 25 years later than expected. But his story will have to wait for next week. Back on the prince's islands, Romanus now had plenty of time to chat about his soul. Whether he was deeply saddened by his fall or accepted it as a part of life at the top, we'll never know. But he lived on for another three years, finally passing away in June of 948. His body was brought back to the capital and buried with honour alongside his wife in the family mausoleum. He was in his late seventies and had once been Roman emperor for twenty-five very successful years. I mentioned earlier that we lack details of John's time as domestic, and that goes for Romanus too. Between his rise and fall, we know almost nothing about his presence in the capital. Histories were always written with an agenda in mind, and it was difficult for the writers of the day to know how to pitch his reign. Did they glorify the Le Capinae and risk offending the Macedonian heritage that they were now intertwined with, or did they glorify the Macedonians and risk offending the emperor? So long as Constantine VII lived, it was impossible to know which way things were headed. We suffer as a result from this lack of detail, but Constantine's presence, in retrospect, may have been why Romanus's reign was so trouble-free. As we've seen in the past, and we'll see again in the future, child emperors invite coups and rebellions as men try to fill the power vacuum. Once Romanus had succeeded, though, he had the legitimate adult Vasilefs in his pocket. No one was going to rise against him just to free Constantine from house arrest. As a result, 25 years of uncontested and successful rule followed. Still, when we lack personal details about an emperor, we have to look to his actions to judge him. And the verdict of history is that Romanus was a wise man who always took the prudent course of action. His rise to power involved no serious bloodshed, which remains an impressive achievement. His chief minister and senior general served him loyally and capably for two decades, another unusual distinction. The lasting peace in the Balkans was established with pragmatic concessions and would free the empire up for the amazing success they're about to enjoy in the east. His decision to focus his military on Armenia bore real fruit. He avoided another costly effort to retake Crete. He avoided provoking Cairo or Baghdad by targeting Cilicia. Instead, he zeroed in on isolated Arab outposts surrounded by Roman allies. And thanks to John's diligence, the empire had achieved a dominant position in the mountains 
essentially ending raids coming from that direction. The capture of Melatine and the Mandilion add the necessary glamour to a record which suggests that Romanus was the most successful emperor since Leo III. The only blot on his record is the succession, which was bound to be messy. Romanus got lucky that Constantine was able to seize power without any more bloodshed, but he had maintained the born-in-the-purple-prince's position, thus avoiding an uprising against his family. Despite the loss of his two sons, many Le Capinae would go on to prosper. His son was still patriarch, his daughter the Augusta, and his bastard boy Basil was now well ensconced in the palace. Not to mention his grandson would become emperor, and his granddaughter was empress of Bulgaria. It's worth noting that Constantine would commission several histories, which would eventually cover the events of Romanus's life, and despite a few sniffy comments, no effort to blacken his reputation was made. Le Capinos had been unusually good at creating harmony. Next time, we introduce a man who has been awkwardly waving from the back of the family photos for the last quarter century, Constantine VII. What did he do during all those years? What was he really like? And what did he think of the Le Capinai that he shared his home with? That episode will be available to buy next Friday for $7. That money is a commission from you to me to keep researching, writing, and recording for the foreseeable future. Please consider buying it and supporting the podcast. Go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com and look for sale instructions in the top right-hand corner for more information. <laughs>